My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. I am Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Post Credit Podcast. I am your host, Eric Italiano, senior writer at ProBible.com. Today, as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Kate Onder, who you can find writing about video games over at comicbook.com. We're also joined by the Halfway House, a.k.a. Brandon Katz, <laughs> industry strategist over at Parrot Analytics. You can find Brandon over at Great Cats. BB, what's up? Last time we talked to you was House of the Dragon finale. I think so. I think so. So it's been a few weeks. I'm glad to be back here in the Halfway House nickname. It just, just gets a laugh out of me every time. I mean, I don't know if I could keep calling you that now that you've come back is what Kay just called a Captain America beard. Yeah. <laughs> he, he is looking rugged. I am rocking a lazy man beard. I got tired of trimming and maintaining. So, you know, I've just been like shaving the neck and just leaving everything else. So we'll, oh. we'll see how long I go with this. So we've got a packed show today. I am super, super excited to talk to you all about what we've got cooking. We've got Andor, basically a season catch up since I don't think we've talked about it since those first couple drops. And, and Eric, we've got Andor and Onder, so we've got both of them really covered. <laughs> right, and for all we know, Cade could be planning a rebellion as we speak. <laughs> Landlock states have been trying to rise up for years, and now's their chance. It's exactly One way it. out, Cade. The uh, midterms what? didn't go our way, so we gotta... <laughs> Did you catch up? Uh, <laughs> I got I got a little bit of it, but oh, I just got no, this... I, That's I can't actually say. House of the Dragon. I gave you the pass on because yeah, I knew bad. you. You don't like fantasy shows, and we yeah. all have our own tastes. You don't this have that excuse this time. Yeah, yeah. I, I I'll be up to date for the series finale, assuming we touch on that. Season. Uh, what, what would happen season if finale, I something sorry. came up and I couldn't make today's show? Would have been bad. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I would have just been talking to a fucking wall. Whatever. Point being is, so we're, I, I, I guess I'm doing Andor with Brandon, and then we're all going to talk about Wakanda forever. I might have interviewed. Well, no, the interviews exist. It's just a matter of whether I get them back in time with Nicholas Holt for The Menu and Frank Grillo for Lamborghini. If you're hearing this and they're not in this podcast, sorry, they'll be on the next podcast. If you are and they're here, then congrats. Uh, <laughs> but before but before we get to all that, a uh, bit sadder news, Kevin Conroy, a.k.a. the voice of Batman, passed away, I believe, last Friday. 66 years old, short battle with cancer, first started to voice the character in Batman, the animated series, and went on to be the voice in the Justice League cartoons and various DCAU, DC animated universe films, of course, the Arkham games. You know, I put this out in a tweet and it went viral because I didn't really, like, I just tweeted it because, like, there are a lot of Batman guys out there and Mm -hmm. I'm definitely one of them. So I just felt it was right to sort of share my thoughts. And I guess it resonated with a lot of people. And Brandon sort of explained this as well. Kevin Conroy, to me, his passing, his Batman was the first character I ever loved. And I believe put me on the life path that I'm currently on. And this is something that I've said on the show thousands of times. So to lose him and to lose a version of Batman that is widely considered and I think of Batman to be like America's preeminent myth. Like I, I have a hard time thinking of I mean, if unless you want to get into the weeds about calling Christ a myth, but that's a different story entirely. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I have a hard time thinking other than Superman, perhaps, having a, a more historic American figure. 
And to have somebody whose voice became synonymous with that gone, it's tough, not, you know, tough. That is life, but it hurt. And I, the response to his passing has just been clear to me, like what an impact this guy has made. B, you and I are almost 10 years older than Cade, yet he is just as connected to Kevin Conroy's version of Batman as we are. So as I expressed in my tweet, you know, he was sort of at the nexus of my fandom. Like once I became old enough to start to appreciate and root for and enjoy things, that Batman cartoon was there. And B, I know that you had said something like that in your tweets. Yeah, I mean, listen, there's no reason to say anything else when you've put it so beautifully and articulately. Titan of the industry, he's going to be missed. Too too young. Yeah, I mean, uh, he... He obviously started Batman long before I was born and then was still playing that character in other iterations, whether it be animated films or video games or whatever. And that was always great. When I was growing up, I was in and out of the hospital a lot and stuff. And so I connected the most with Spider-Man and Batman because they were always there for me when I got home, you know, whether it be action figures or toys or uh, movies or TV shows, whatever. And so his voice is synonymous with those times of coming home from the hospital and just like turning on Batman, the animated series, or there was like a Batman uh, Superman animated movie that I would watch a lot. That's my favorite. That's my favorite. And it's just like that. And and those two characters resonated with me the most Batman or Spider-Man because um, you know, they come from these childhood traumas not that I was traumatized, but you know, it showed they can grow they are resilient characters. They persevere no matter what. And that was always very important to me. And then obviously I'm big into video games and Kevin Conroy is the voice of the Arkham games and is so definitive that when they did Arkham Origins and it wasn't him, everyone's like, what the fuck? What are you doing? Yeah, and it made sense yeah. why they did it, but everyone's like so alarmed. And then when he came back for night and just, oh, he just kills it every time. And I won't go on about this much longer, but he had a way of like, depending on the maturity of the project, whether it was a TV show aimed at kids or an M rated video game, he could channel the right amount of Batman. And that was just perfect. Yeah. So RIP to Kevin Conroy, our thoughts go out to his friends, family and fans worldwide. All right, let's move on to some quick hitters before we dive into our various breakdowns. Uh, Sean Levy is in talks Levy, Levy, I've spoke to the guy and I'm still not sure to be honest with you. Uh, (laughs) Sean Levy is in talks to direct a new Star Wars film. I tweeted, whoa, a populist franchise hired a populist filmmaker. Shocker. And, you know, I think that this is ultimately a very uninspiring pick, but also like a pick that I can appreciate because if you look at how Stranger Things was able to sort of tap into that OG 80s Spielbergian, John Carpenterian magic, I think that Levy has the potential to do that same thing for Star Wars. So, you know, he will definitely make something more like The Force Awakens than The Last Jedi or Rogue One. There's no doubting that. But if you're Lucasfilm trying to sort of right the ship and make a billion dollar Star Wars film, I think he's a smart choice. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I just don't believe that there's going to be a Star Wars movie until I'm watching the trailer or sitting down in the theater. Otherwise, no, like this is all too. just noise. Yeah, as, I love that. Uh, as George R. R. Martin is fond of writing, words are wind. George, yeah, right. <laughs> George R. R. of all fucking people. Um, all right, Warner Bros. President David Zaslav wants to adapt Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. The sort of general response seems to be no shit. 
Margot Robbie says her Pirates of the Caribbean film is no longer in the works. I saw some people comparing it to the all-female Ghostbusters and Oceans films, both of which did not do well, being like, well, no shit, they aren't doing this. Which I will (laughs) retort, neither of them starred Margot Robbie as a fucking pirate. So, wrong. I would have happily seen that. <laughs> I would have happily seen that movie. I also just love this is this franchise is the only context in which we all pronounce it Caribbean. Otherwise, we all of us say Caribbean. Yeah, you're completely right too. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, Kevin Feige and Ryan Coogler have started discussing Black Panther three. Also, no shit. Jason Momoa says his dream DC projects is in the works. Some fans think think it has to do with Lobo because James Gunn opened a Mastodon account, which I guess is like a kind of fake Twitter. And his first post was of Lobo. Dope character, but he's already Aquaman. So I'm not really sure what's going on with that there. An Indiana Jones TV. What? It may be an animated Lobo. I know that... uh comicbook.com interviewed Jason Momoa and brought this up with him and said, hey, what's James Gunn's thing? And is it Lobo? And then he was like, uh, did, did James Gunn really say that? <laughs> so it seemed like, yeah. it seems That was like a great clip. Yeah, it's good stuff. Lobo, actually, just type back, Cade, that Batman and Superman film is actually from the Superman animated series, which Lobo was in a lot. Right. You're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, An Indiana Jones TV series is in the works at Disney+. Plus. Uh, Rumor has it it's going to focus on Abner Ravenwood, who is Karen Allen's father. He's been mentioned but not seen and is also the grandfather of Shia LaBeouf's character. Keanu Reeves is returning as John Wick in the upcoming Ana de Armas starring spinoff Ballerina. And then finally, the John Wick 4 trailer dropped. Do you guys have thoughts? Looks dope as per the chorus of John Wick. Yeah, that's pretty much it. This shouldn't I mean, be I'm a simple man. I, I see John Wick, I show up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, all right, let's take a quick break when we come back, recapping Andor and the breakdown of Wakanda forever. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. All right, and we are back. Andor, I don't know if we should call this a recap, more of a catch-up, more of a holy shit. This show is... <laughs> A revolution, <laughs> both in its text and its subtext, and it's it is. I I'm at a loss for words, really. This is coming from a guy who has been fucking shouting to anybody who will hear it that Rogue One is the best Star Wars film of all time. But even I, after the first few Andors, I was like, all right, it's good, and it's clearly operating at a higher plane than most Star Wars shows. But just given its very granular nature i tuned out for a few weeks because i could you know what i mean Mm -hmm. it's not one of those shows where you have to tune in week in and week out i think based on quality alone it is now one of those shows episodes eight nine and ten which are so every um three have been sort of a three episode arc so eight nine and ten take place on a jail and it is being talked about as one of the greatest Star Wars things of all time and its ability to mix elements of war and peace and Marxism and (laughs) Occupy Wall Street and the slave trade and the industrial prison complex and political revolutions and all of this shit 
in a fucking Disney Plus show. How Gilroy pulled this off, I have no idea. And what I've been thinking about a lot as I've caught up on this is something that Brandon first said when we first touched on the show. I think whenever it first came out, I don't even remember when that was because time no longer exists in this world. Brandon said that this is ultimately a series about radicalization, and that has only been proven further true as the weeks have gone by. And Damn, that, that was ulti- smart. I'm, I'm going to pat myself on the back. I don't even remember saying that, but nice. <laughs> but that is ultimately a further distillation of what I've often said about what made Rogue One great, and that is Rogue One understood that war is hell. But what this show is doing and what Brandon identified early on is what pushes somebody to go to war? What pushes somebody to go through hell? How do you how do you get to that point where you're willing to walk through hell? And that is what Andor it's a, is about. It's about regular people without laser swords and magic being forced to walk through hell to defeat the devil himself. And we're seeing commoners like you and I extremized. I don't know if, if that's a word. Um, extremized and radicalized to such an extent that they eventually grow on to become legendary, however, unfortunately forgotten war heroes that save a galaxy, millions upon millions of lives. One thing that is that I've been thinking about a a lot is how none of the Rogue One characters are known to the people in A New Hope. Well, no, because Luke names his his squadron Rogue Squadron. Well, no, 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 except for that. I'm talking like their names, like Cassian and, you know, Jin. Luthen is largely unknown to the characters of Rogue One. Like this seismic organizer of the rebellion at its dawn is a forgotten figure. So to see that in such a, such a cold light of day, usually when we get these stories like Rogue One or A New Hope, the protagonist is at the tail end of their journey, right? And they're about to burst through that ceiling of being a true hero. Yeah, Luke. Like, all right, he still has some shit to learn, but he's been wondering, is there more out there for me his whole life, right? Rogue One, we are seeing Cassian at the end of his heroic journey. This is the opposite. This is the birth and growth of heroism at all levels, which is ultimately what Star Wars is about, right? It's it's about regular people standing up and doing the right thing in the face of ultimate evil. And that is distilled and granularized that idea to such a brutal extent. And we'll get to how brutal the show is in a bit that it is not surprising to me that it is being considered one of the greatest Star Wars things of all time. Preach. I think it's very interesting too that uh, Disney- Kate, you didn't even watch it. Shut up. I've watched- no. I've watched like the first three or four. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm totally um, kidding. Go ahead. I think it's very interesting that Disney is making that big push with like Hulu and ABC and, and ABC family, whatever the fuck it's called now. Freeform, um, bitch. Freeform. Yep, that's it. That's a catchy name. Um, <laughs> I think that's a very interesting given A, uh, the themes of this show are very like big. You know, like you said, uh, everything you just said is <laughs> like- Carl Marks. Yeah, that's a lot to just be like, here, on ABC after the fucking evening news, right? Like, that's a crazy concept to me during, I think it's what, Thanksgiving week or something? Right, yeah. So, uh, the fact that that'll be just on in people's homes and people are just be like, hey, the new Star Wars thing. And like, what the fuck is going on? This is not Luke Skywalker slicing people up. <laughs> It'll be also be on FX, too, which is where I think it very much fits as well. There's yes, some crossover I think that's It is an American's-ass show. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, this has been talked about, but Tony Gilroy, 
He's so much more concerned with telling a human story than a Star Wars story. You know, he's got open verbal disdain for the franchise, <laughs> which which has really been a benefit. And I think what he's doing, and I got some notes here that I'm reading from because uh, I just really had to jot it down because I was so kind of passionate and blown away. He's doing it. He's doing so in like a very narrow field of opportunity, which he somehow turned to his benefit. What I mean by that is I think the main criticism you can lob at Andor, and this is also in talking with a lot of people as well as my own kind of uh breakdown is that Cassian himself is not yet a very compelling character. He, he's flat, he's selfish, he's capable, but he's definitely a cog in a bigger machine. And he's been more or less uh, a man of few words just trying to survive the day. And, you know, I, I think everything around him, the situations have been fascinating, but he himself has not really become that fiery rebel we see in Rogue One who's willing to sacrifice everything. But the reason why Andor is functioning so well as a prequel and where other prequels often fail is because they are slowly but very confidently turning him into the character we, we know. And it's it's that razor-thin difference between feeling predetermined, which is boring, and inevitable, which seems to have weight and significance. And I just also want to quickly shout out Mon Mothma because she has been transformed from a small but memorable character in the, into this window that reveals the various philosophies of those who claim to be on the same side, but are, are miles apart. And we see that on, on both sides, both the, the, you know, fledgling rebellion and the Imperial side. We see how each guiding principle has a cost. We see how people are, are trying to attack the same goal from different angles. And it's just this thoughtful and complex look at something that for the most part, the franchise has been very content with keeping it binary and surface level. And here we have really dove into the nuances of opinion, philosophy, and, and guiding principle. You know, just real quick on Mon Mothma, I could almost guarantee that they're going to drop some sort of bomb with her in these final two, because even for a slow burn conversation in rooms show, her storyline is the slowest of slow conversation, conversationally in roomiest of shows. I mean, every time we see her, she is sitting on some sort of couch talking to some rich white guy. And it is, it is so intentionally boring, right? Like, I, like I don't know if I agree with that. I, I think I would have going into it and particularly in the early episodes when they did cut to her, I thought her, her story would feel light comparatively, but I feel like it's added this entire new dimension into, okay, how are rebellions uh, built? Funded. What are the personal costs of people on the inside? How, how do, again, her and Lutheran who have very differing views and, or, you know, she, huh, and, or, uh, and, or, and, or she kind of, kind of coming to reluctantly agree that, oh my God, we have to elicit, absolute tragedy to spur the larger action i mean that's so interesting an idealist to a realist to a hardened realist so i i like i really like it i think it pairs nicely with the more kind of boots on the ground action-packed and or parts i enjoy it thematically i'm just saying from a pure narrative perspective i feel like there has to be some payoff by oh there will be i'm sure season's end whether i she hope gets, her fuckboy like, husband gets it the husband or whether she gets made and has to like enact some sort of physical violence to keep her secret. I just don't see the season ending on that same note with her. But before we get into sort of the heroes of this show and why that makes it so strong, I want to sort of talk about the villains and the empire who be your star Wars brain here. These are the sort of earliest post revenge of the Sith days of Palpatine's rule, right? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. So, and I would argue that 
other than scenes where they're literally blowing up entire planets that they've never been scarier because they're like a startup now, right? Like they're passionate, they're hungry, they're young, they're fiery. And that is sort of epitomized in Dedra's total company man commitment to like law and order and rule. And I'm fascinated with this character if they're setting her up for some sort of moral epiphany or if she's just like a cold blooded killer. You know what I mean? But I just- I hope it's the latter. Yeah, same. But just between her sort of laser focus in the monotony of like bureaucratic empire investigation work or Dr. Gorse horrifying torture techniques or the guard gleefully being like, hey boss, can I hang him in the town square? Like (laughs) they're fucking terrifying. And then you take it to the jail. They're throwing people in electrocuted floor jails for no reason and keeping them there forever. I think one of the scariest lines that's ever been spoken in Star Wars lore, and I genuinely mean this, is when Circus's Kino Loy says to one of the panicking prisoners, these aren't his exact words, but it takes a week from for a single word to get from one side of the building to the other. Like the conceptual horror of that, of being in such a regimented and locked down world that you could quantify how long information takes to get from point A to point B is so fucking scary to me. And then you just double all that down with the fact that they executed a hundred men for getting too smart, right? And I just think that the way that this show is handling the realistic nature of what a fascist genocidal empire would look like, whereas, you know, when they're blowing up planets, that's a lot of red shirt deaths, right? They aren't introducing characters then being like, here's why you should care about them. You're just pre-programmed to care because, hey, newsflash, blowing up planets is bad. But in this version, they are showing you the A, the torturees, and B, the torturers, and it makes it so much more lived in and visceral and terrifying. Yeah, I mean, like you said, the Blowing up planets is meant to convey information quickly about this organization. It's a plot mechanism that's obviously horrible in scale. And yet, I don't want to say empty in in emotional execution because it's not, but it's certainly not as hard felt as what we're seeing here because this is the slow tightening of the noose around the neck. And The reason why slow motion has been used to add importance to entertainment for decades now, or even, you know, replay an amazing football play is because it intensifies the drama because you see it second by second, frame by frame. And that's what this feels like. The, the boot Mm. on the rebellion, just slowly pushing down and you're like, Oh my God, I feel it on my neck and I'm not even, you know, I'm real and this is fake. So that's why I think it's so effective. And, I want to go back too to the Dr. Gorse's torture. I mean, the nightmare fuel that is that torture. It was so specific and so evocative with just words and the reaction. And I also just want to give them credit logistically. It was the perfect example of PG-13 horror. You know, like, hey, kids are still going to watch this, but oh my God, is this disturbing. The technical skill to like have the sort of ringing of the electric headphones and the, the heavy panting of her panicked breathing meant to cut the music and sound out entirely and just to focus on her face. I mean, this is a lot of 
fans and critics have said this, but if you're making a Star Wars show, I feel like you're throwing up your pen and pad and saying, fuck this shit. How am I supposed to compete with this? Because, like, you know, in the writer's room, they were pitching ideas of, like, okay, how do we exemplify the the torture while still letting it pass, like, the standards? And just really, really good writing to land on a very conceptually terrifying idea that's executed well. And then, again, that's a microcosm for the rest of the show and how they've built the threats and the themes side by side. It's just really, really, really impressive. All right, now let's swing over to the light side of the force, a word that we've not heard in this show yet, the heroes. I have said this about Rogue One. I'm going to say it about Andor a lot to the point where it becomes cliched. What makes this great is that they're focusing on the war and not the stars, both in a like a literal sense. They're focusing on the war and not sort of the planes and the lightsabers, but they're focusing on the infantry soldiers and not the stars of the show. We're not getting the Jedi and the Sith. We're getting the AAA versions of these <laughs> characters, right? So, and B, this is why I love to have you on this show because you provide such a business insight. Do you think that this show would be performing better if it was called something like the Rebel Alliance and was less about Cassian and more about the birth of the Rebellion as we know it? Because it's not focusing on Jedi there's no force, there's no lightsabers, there's no Yoda, there's no prophecies and Sith and, and Darth. This is the genesis of the core tenet of Star Wars. So I just wonder if instead of naming it after the last name of a character of a spinoff film that a lot of regular fans might not remember, if they slapped that awesome Rebel Alliance logo on it and went down that path, would it be performing better now? I think there were, yeah, this and other ways there there were to make it more commercial, but I think that would obviously would have hurt quality. I mean, you think about the other Star Wars shows. You've got The Mandalorian. Okay, that guy looks like Boba Fett, which is really cool. And then you have, after the, the first episode, you have Baby Yoda as a marketing hook. Those two elements, great. It's also a Western and with action. Then you've got Boba Fett, legacy character. You've got Obi-Wan, legacy character. Upcoming, you've got Ahsoka, which promises to tie together multiple different mediums of Star Wars and now has been a familiar character uh, introduced in, in these shows. All of them have very specific marketing hooks. But the second or third lead in Rogue One, a recent movie, which was very successful, I'm not saying that, but isn't you know as revered as a legacy character or has ties to the Jedi or it, it's not super action-packed. It's about a bunch of characters we've never met before other than him. There's not a clear marketing hook, which is why I think, you know, one reason, among many reasons, why it's not doing as well viewership-wise, I do think this show's going to benefit from a lot of binge-watchers catching up in the quote-unquote off-season. But yeah, I mean, this is not as four-quadrant or as happy-go-lucky as, hey, let's have a monster of the week or a mission of the week like in Mandalorian. And I think that's why it's probably the most critically acclaimed Star Wars show of all. And I, I this is also a side point that I almost tweeted earlier today. Stranger but you Things saved it for one. us. Thanks, Brandon. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> you nailed it. Stranger Things season one, Mando season one, both breakout commercial successes that the Emmys nominated for best drama. We can debate whether or not they, they it was deserved it. Either way, it was probably good business sense to do it. This isn't quite as commercial, but in my opinion, is so much more deserving of like, wow, they did like a franchise genre show that snuck into the best drama category. This totally deserves it as it is one of the best shows of 2022, not just the best Star Wars shows, but it's probably not going to get it. I mean, I'd say they 
ultimately Game of Thrones Star Wars, right? They took it and said, how do we make a conversation in rooms show? How do we make this compelling without explosions and duels and fights and wars and all that stuff? And I think that not, I'm not trying to say that the Jedi and the Sith and the Force are an inherently bad thing for Star Wars because it is what made it the cultural franchise icon that it is today. But what I will say is that, and this is something that I've always felt about Rogue One, the relatability of the characters gives the story an authenticity in an already far off scenario that humans have a hard time wrapping their head around. But when it comes to Rogue One and Andor, I find that the focusing on the, I mean, this has been a somewhat controversial part of the show. There's no alien characters. It's all humans. And that serves to just, what be? I was coughing. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) These Zooms, you know, I could never tell if it's a breath to speak or a sneeze or cough. So I just think that with this show and with Rogue One, the, the focusing on human characters allows humans like us to further embed ourselves in this world. And I think that that's why I've watched episode 10 in a similar reason to what you said about feeling the tightening around your own neck. You feel like you're in it. You feel like yeah. these are my guys. I am part of <laughs> Unit 52D or whatever the fuck they're called. I'm sitting on my couch chanting one way out, <laughs> one one way out. I, did I have a fraction of the passion that I had for The Rise of Skywalker? A multi-hundred million dollar film that's supposed to be a franchise capper of a 50-year saga? As I did for episode fucking 10 of Star Wars? It's not even comparable. And how do you get there? <laughs> Pure quality, whether or not that has to do with the Jedi, the Jedi's presence in the show is yet to be determined, but I do think that it is an added bridge to accessibility and therefore entertainment and enjoyment. You know me, I've said it on Twitter, I've said it on the show a million times, I love the Force, I love the Jedi and Sith history, I find all of that stuff fascinating, I I go down the Wookiepedia, you know, wormholes all the time. But after circling the same drain for so many projects in the history of this franchise, it is really nice to provide audiences with this new critical lens with which to view the Star Wars universe and some more ground level perspectives that are way more impactful to the citizens of this galaxy on a day to day level than what the Jedi typically deal with. Because Andor feels like this micro seed planted and growing into something bigger while the Jedi pretty much only deal with the macro across all of the movies. So it, it is very refreshing to focus on this lane for a change and dig deeper into the characters, again, that are, are going to have much more of a representative effect of the galaxy than the 10,000 or so Jedi that represent 0.01% of the 0.01% for so many reasons, both population volume-wise and like abilities-wise. And then final thing that I want to touch on here with our Andor catch-up is even further zoomed in than the heroes are two of them specifically, and that is Andy Serkis's Kino Loy and Stellan Skarsgård's Luthen. We have deactivated every floor in the facility. All the floors are cold. Wherever you are, right now, get up. Stop the work. Get out of your cells. Take charge and start climbing. They don't have enough guards and they know it. But if we wait until they figure that out, it'll be too late. We will never have a better chance than this. 
And I would rather die trying to take them down than giving them what they want. You know, B, you said that Cassian himself is not a very interesting character yet. Yeah. And I think that that's yeah. evidenced by the fact that two of the um, statement-making Emmy submission speeches were given to other characters except yes. the lead. And I think that this speaks to sort of undercurrent of this entire show, which is just that it's quality, right? It's just well-made. And I know that that could sound like a very basic analyzation of this, but that is the truth. Why is it good? Because it's well-written. And that's about fucking it. Tony <laughs> Gilroy has no idea about the Star Wars Easter eggs that they're putting in the background of his own show. He doesn't advise on that. He doesn't give a shit about none of that. All he's done is write an incredible show. And I think that bears itself out in the way that this is effectively used a cliffhanger, right? Because it's, it's not using cliffhangers with someone pulling a gun or a bomb exploding or a big reveal, right? It is ending on specific sentences of specific conversations, but because of the structural integrity of the script and the series, it allows for what I call the script drama. And I think the sort of best example of that, other than the two big speeches that we'll cut in a bit here, was that episode nine ends with Kino saying, never more than 12. Those are the last four words and it cuts to black there. It's only a few words and it's largely out of context, but it hits with the force of a haymaker because the masterful way that they've stitched the story together that every word that Kino Loy has said up until that point mattered and was relevant in what he was saying there. So for them to do this week after week to cut the episodes at such pivotal character moments of internal revelation or growth. It's just, it's masterful. <laughs> that is particularly that Kino uh, line to end episode nine. He was saying one thing, but the fact that he was saying it implied that he had made a choice that countered everything we had seen before. And that was why it was so impactful because you could use words that aren't talking about the specific thing that the the actual representation implies. And I think that's, you know, just good writing, like you said. And I, you know, never thought I would see this sort of richly layered operatic monologuing that we get from Kino and Luthen in episode 10 in any Star Wars project. So it, it has been a very interesting change of pace for a franchise, very deservedly so, that prides itself on its spectacle more than anything else. And that's not a bad thing. Did you have one that you preferred more? I, they they both hit, man. They just both absolutely hit. I mean, hit. think about the idea of stave, staging an epic prison riot and having Andy Circus deliver the coup de grace speech of that riot and not having that be your last scene. <laughs> and, then, and then just rolling out, telling Skarsgård to be like, all right, bro, go throw 110 on the black. <laughs> what is my sacrifice? I'm condemned to use the tools of my enemy defeat them. I burn my decency for someone else's future. I burn my life to make a sunrise that I know I'll never see. Now the ego that started this fight will never have a, a mirror or an audience or, or the light of gratitude. So what do I sacrifice? Everything! And just uh, quickly, prediction time. Is Kino dead? Yes or no? Uh, I don't need to predict because Tony Sir uh, Tony Circus, Jesus Christ, Tony Gilroy uh, addressed this himself. He says he's not dead. Is he dead? I didn't see him die. 
So okay, well, now that answers it probably. Listen, those surviving prison guards. I mean, look, you would hope that like if the like the rest of the prisoners there need to like murder or lock up the rest of the guards, are also just gonna go right back to being tortured. So. I think he's alive, but I don't know if his condition is all that great. But look, yeah, I mean, these speeches, some of the best Star Wars soliloquying, monologuing, speechifying, whatever you want to call it that I've ever seen. I'm actually struggling to think of a more well-constructed, you know, maybe when like The Last Jedi, when Luke and uh, Kylo Ren are going back and forth, but I really can't think of the last time that Star Wars dialogue had me this G'd up. Yeah. And of course that, you know, you reference Ryan Johnson dialogue that that's very on, on par, you know, yeah, it's on program. All right. And with that note, we will take a break and swing over to black Panther Wakanda forever. All right, and we are back. Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, the final film in MCU's phase four. That's wild. I know. I, how like quickly. Remember, <laughs> remember in the late 2020 when we were like just jonesing like an addict for some Marvel. And now we're like, oh yeah, phase four is done. And they gave us Black Widow. Um, <laughs> they made $330 million in its first weekend, which I think is as much as Black Adam has made total. <laughs> Yikes. Um, you know, look, this is... I don't think that people are really surprised that this is probably the best MCU film of the year. I actually think it's, I tweeted out my list. I have it in my, my top 10 after some reflection. I think that what Ryan Coogler is doing and B has put this in tweets and he'll say it on the show. I'm sure is he has taken not only difficult circumstance with the death of his star, but taken a difficult prospect in and of itself. And that is, bringing your own voice and tone and aesthetic to not only a comic book film, but to an MCU comic book film. And not only is he able to do that with both the first film and this one, despite the fact that the iconic star at its center is now dead, but he's able to imbue these movies that have spent 10 years being derided for their lack of heart. You know, the infinity wars, notwithstanding he is able this is i think outside of infinity war and endgame the most emotional marvel film made and i am a emotional film fan that is why i turn up to these things i turn up to feel things you could show me shitty cgi but if it's backed up by a story that i'm invested in i could give a shit less so that is what i think he does best is he is taking blockbuster film making at its largest scale at its most high wire act level but he's able to wrap his arms around it and boil it down to such a human and warm and relatable and digestible and i just want to throw words out friendly and loving just everything that he does the film even though it is a film about grief it feels like a uh, like a long hug from an old friend that's well put. Yeah, I uh, I expected this to be emotional. I didn't cry, which I was surprised by. Same. But I felt the power of the moments where it, it wants you to, right? Uh, when the Marvel logo appears at the start and it's just silent. I was in a theater probably 
400 people and wow. it's a huge IMAX theater. And um, there was maybe one person who coughed and that was like deafeningly loud because of how quiet it was. And I was like, Oh, this is, this is powerful. And they know what they're doing. And there are a lot of moments throughout the movie, even, you know, in like the last scene where they know when to use music, when to not use music and how to use that to affect you emotionally. And I think that's incredibly smart. And that's just one of many examples of how this movie, uh, I don't want to say manipulates your emotions. Cause it's not, it's all truthful, but yeah. um, plays, plays on them. Yeah. It's not manipulation. He, he's, acknowledging a yeah. real world tragedy and he's blending it into the storytelling pretty seamlessly. And I don't think there's anything exploitive about mm-hmm. it. I, you know, we, we know from interviews, they were legitimate friends in, in real life. And for him to be able to gracefully incorporate something real into the absolute absurdity that is, you know, a Marvel storyline on mm-hmm. paper, just really, really deft handling. And I, I said this too in a, in a group chat, cause we were talking about, how uh, Ryan Coogler and James Wan with Furious 7 both bid adieu to, to friends and real life members. And we all agreed that they must be in real life just really empathetic people to, yeah. to showcase the story so well and not just have it be like, okay, yeah, we are acknowledging it. And it's 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 kind of heavy handed. It's, it's not exactly seamless. The fact that they could do that so well, I, I got to believe that truly they, they've got some warm hearts in real life. You have to know the person's spirit in order yeah. to be able to really inject that into the film without it coming off as hokey or exploitive. And this movie is, is definitely not that. So let's speak about how they sort of handled the character's death in and of itself. This is something that we talked about a lot in the show heading into the film, because we had no idea how they were going to tackle it at all. Ultimately. Oh, and this should be said spoilers for Wakanda forever. Spoiler alert, spoiler alert, spoiler alert. So it opens with him dying. Now it's off screen, but it is, Shuri in her sort of lab in a very panicked state. T'Challa is dying of an unspecified illness. Shuri is trying to save him with some sort of concoction. Uh, And then later she reveals that she believes that she could have saved him, but T'Challa told her too late, which is a further reflection of sort of the real world story, which I don't even know if Coogler knew until he died. He didn't, as far as I know, nobody knew, not not a single person at Marvel. I think it was largely kept to just his family as far as i understand and obviously his, his so they work that into the film itself it is a harrowing way to start a mcu film how did you guys feel about this did it line up with what you expected it to be it's it's such a tough thing to do because you are it's not like they already had some scenes that they could like you know repurpose or whatever it's like they had nothing and so they really had to make something up and they had to get it out of the way immediately. Otherwise, you're going to be thinking in your head, all right, when's it going to happen? How are we going to address this? So they had to get it out right away. And it's not clumsy. It's not bad because, like, I can't fault the movie for not being able to do it right. But I was like, it's just, I don't know. There was something about it that was like, there's something missing here. It more felt like that scene was like, we're just going to answer your question off the bat as opposed to doing something which i i get they didn't want to kill him off in battle because hey that you maybe, had thought that they might do that i thought so yeah and and i get maybe they're like that could be disrespectful i don't know like i don't i don't know where the mindset was but i i think that in my opinion would have been a more uh i don't want to say exciting but like more interesting way but i also know that they're like 
well, we have to cast someone to kill Black Panther then. And that's probably a really weird spot to be in. Right. So it's a lot of logistical issues that I understand why they did it this way. It didn't really do anything for me one way or the other, though. I think they deployed it well because it then becomes a central through line for Shuri's arc. You know, you you hear her in that opening scene praying to the the ancestral gods to to save him. And when he sadly passes away, she turns and and really buries herself in logic and science and rejects the old ways throughout the rest of the movie and has to learn over the course of the film and the story that there is a balance of both and that the old and the new can exist together and understanding and appreciating the benefits of, of both is kind of where T'Challa was, I think, and particularly taking Wakanda into the, into the real present slash future by revealing themselves to the world to what they really are. And I think that was a really important lesson learned. So I, I think thematically they did a great job of intertwining it with some serious character growth. Any more thoughts on T'Challa or how the film starts before we move on? I agree that it it let it definitely pays well into how they handle it later in the movie. I don't think the first scene necessarily does anything for me, but I think what Brandon just said about it impacting the larger story is fantastic. It's it's certainly jarring, even though we know yeah. he's gone when the first scene, and you don't have any of the added context. Yeah, You're like okay, what is what does this mean for everything? Of course. Yeah. So now let's touch on what's probably the biggest added addition to the MCU following this film, I'd say even bigger than the introduction of a new Black Panther, and that is Namor and the underwater nation of Talokan. Now, again, as I told you guys off mic, you guys have seen this within the last few days. I saw this a few weeks ago, so why don't you touch on any sort of big picture Namor Talokan thoughts that you guys have before we dive in? They were terrifying when they're introduced with that song that they do oh yeah you just like don't they, know what like the they mythical going. sirens yeah yeah exactly it's like you don't know what the hell is happening people just start jumping in the water and it's yeah. just it's scary and like again usage of music there's no actual music being played it's all uh was it diegetic is that the right word oh but the uh the usage of that is just like it sinks into your stomach and it gets louder and louder. And then the, the two like characters that are the protagonists of the scene, I guess, start running and they're, they're getting murdered. And you're just like, this is haunting. And it just displays their power immediately. And then Namor grabs the fucking helicopter and throws in the water. It's like, all right, these guys are not fucking around. They are, as John Hamm says in, in the town, this is the not fucking around crew. Mm. And, and great, that's great the, line usage right there. <laughs> this is exactly what I was thinking. I'm like, oh God, these guys are here to fuck shit up. And uh, yeah, I have more thoughts, but I'll save it for later. Yeah, Namor's brutality and strength and capability throughout was really impressive. And I also think they did a good job, of course, of balancing that brutality, brutality out with uh, moments of gentleness and, and sensitivity. I think they were going for a, a similar Killmonger-esque, uh, you know, development in, in terms of trying to get the audience to sympathize with Namor. I, I think you do can understand a lot of his point of view. I don't think it's quite as effective because given his- I disagree. I think it's, I think it's more so. I think whereas Killmonger largely seems driven by the personal vendetta of the death of his father, and then adds on the, you know, there's a lot of black folks that we could help. Namor's core drive seems to be for the nation and for yeah. his people. I, I mean, I, I think he's making a lot of logical leaps in this, uh, <laughs> in this, in this movie. So 
first off, you know, we, he, his main conflict, the catalyst, is because they're digging for vibranium. Of course, he understands that that could potentially lead them to discover the city. Digging for it underwater. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, yeah, digging for it. Under, and that could potentially lead them to I get that. He's trying to build up protections in advance, but he immediately jumps to, we're going to wipe out the surface world, even though they <laughs> still don't know there exists. Right. And then that was a bit much, buddy. Tone it down a few steps. Exactly. <laughs> and then I think throughout the film, you know, there's this constant kind of question of like, oh, you know, like, should we spare him and all that? I'm like, I'm sorry, but he, he broke into Wakanda, so a sovereign nation. Uh, you know, cross the borders illegally. illegally. I'm, I'm going to go through the checklist. Go through, <laughs> goes through and, and threatens them right off the bat. Says, I need you to bring me an innocent scientist that I'm going to murder or I'm going to wipe out Wakanda. That's the first thing he does. He just, <laughs> now, like, hearing you leader. say it like that does really good sort of... Uh... No, seriously, because he's, he, you say it's all about his nation and I totally agree and I do respect that he's trying to protect his people, but then let's think about it as if this was a nation's leader talking to a nation's leader. The, <laughs> the, next, thing he, the next thing he does is abduct Shiri and Riri. Yes, Shiri says, like, take me with you, but that's only as a last chance, uh, you know, bargaining chip to Balloon. try to spare an innocent 19-year-old from being murdered. Then when when they are essentially captives and POWs, he presents her with another destructive ultimatum, being like, either I'm going to destroy Wakanda or you're going to ally with me. Then he, when they escape, they attack Wakanda and murder the queen and then after that, they also, you know, plan to enact their overall, we're going to take out Wakanda and the rest of the world. So, again, I, I think he has reasons to be distrustful of humanity. I do. And I have no extreme circumstances in my life. I just hate, I just think we're all terrible people. He has <laughs> legitimate reasons to, to think and believe that. But his actions don't warrant the sympathy I think aw awarded to him. And I think the actor was great. Again, I think the characters super cool and super complex and super interesting. I, I just don't necessarily think the narrative attempts to be like, but it's not all bad. He's not all bad. And we got to remember to be good and not kill people. Like at the end of the day, Iron Man's the only one who got it. Yo, you killed my mom. You're done. Boom. Like yeah. there, there's, there's, there's no coming back from that. Yeah. I, I, or at least take him like prisoner or something. Right. Like to show up at the end of the movie and they're like, all right, we worked it out. It's like, dude, the queen died yesterday. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. From like a United Nations standpoint, like, you know, if, if, if America openly, cause we've definitely done it in private. If we've openly <laughs> assassinated a head of state of another nation, you know, it, it would be, it would literally be world war three. Yeah, it's uh, there are a lot of stories recently. At, like I thought of The Last of Us Part Two uh, is like we got to we got to forgive. And it's like I get that and I, I totally applaud stories for trying it. But I think a lot of them failed to hit that last very important Agreed. note to get the audience all the way there. Um, and I get in this movie, you don't want to end it with vengeance like this is not the kind of movie that that would probably warrant that i mean but even batman was like all right you know i could probably be a bit more hopeful <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly so there, there are ways to do it that i think seamlessly get the audience on on the side of the story but it's it's a very tall task yeah and i and i want to like also say that my comments here are also now with the additional context that namor is certainly going to be used in future yeah. stories and right. so you know, for him to eventually team up with the Avengers, I'd be like, you know, you murdered my mom slash the queen of a country. Like, no, like I'm going to, you come around my block again, I'm going to kill you. Like, yeah. I, I truly can't 
see a reasonable explanation as to like we got to work together. No, I don't. I don't care if Thanos. So shows do up. you? So you're <laughs> saying that T'Challa would not have made the same choice? No, I'm sure T'Challa would because he was the original. Like vengeance has consumed me. I'm I, you know I'm done with yeah. that. And he it would have still been dumb the noble choice. I, I just don't think it works quite as well. Whereas like, listen, Killmonger's done some really bad stuff, but you know, he, he also killed uh, Ulysses Claw, a noted terrorist. And he uh, still and died. He, and what? he still fucking died. Yeah. And, and he want, and he ultimately his, his goal, I think was a bit more tangible and, and immediately pressing helping disenfranchised black people across the world. than uh, Namor, who again, his country has not been discovered. Maybe the humans will, if they keep on digging, but that's that's far from a guarantee. Do you think James Cameron went to see Wakanda forever? And as soon as they went down to Talacan, he stormed out like, this is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> this is my fucking movie. I'm sure he's not thrilled. <laughs> he, he's going with his real submarine in real life. To go Why does this look better than my fucking movie? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, it looked, it looked damn good, but I'm not going to bet against you know avatar the way of water looking incredible now we'll be actually kate and i talked about this last week we think that the environment cgi looks incredible but there's a level of uncanny valleyness to the avatars themselves that will just forever make it a bit uncomfortable i will say uh both the trailers for avatar and ant-man the wasp looked way better on an imax screen i don't know if they did something to improve both of them or if they just look better on a big screen, but they looked good. All right. So Namor, this is probably flying under the radar. I only got the idea because I saw Brandon retweeted it. Knew going into this, he was the second confirmed mutant in the MCU following Miss Marvel. But the fucking key thing that he says here is that his aging is slower. He's been around for hundreds of years, but he looks like he's 40. And this, of course, is a direct layup to Magneto and the fact that they could cast a man who is able to exist in World War II and go through all of the horrors of that and then still be a handsome young A-lister 80 <laughs> years later. So, B, you're Jewish. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, I mean, you're not. Yeah, yeah. No, I know, you're not. You are, but, that, but no, but I'm really going to ask you is because Magneto... I bring up the Jewish thing because when you and I had had conversations about him in the past, you had been very adamant to the fact that his origin story is perhaps the most key origin story in all of comics. You really cannot replace that. This allows for that. Do you agree? Are you excited? I got this idea from you, so speak on it. Yeah, I, it wasn't my tweet, but someone tweeted that and all kind of clicked into place like, duh, of course they could do that. And I, I do think it's really important. I mean, his Jewishness and his Holocaust experience, experience is integral to his viewpoint and how he, in, in the kind of quote unquote present day as an adult, goes about his de decision making and motivations. And so while sure, you, you can recreate a, a new origin story that, that gets at a lot of that. It's going to be really difficult. I, I think it's so vital to who the character is and how he he goes about viewing the world and himself within that world that now that we have this sort of easy, you know, hand wave away explanation, why not use it? You know, why even court the controversy yeah. when you have something staring at you at the face right there? That's as easy as like, a, I'm a mutant. I don't age. Cool. Next topic. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, like that's like, hey, if you were around in World War II, like, why do you look for I'm a mutant? I don't age. Okay, cool. On to the next MacGuffin. <laughs> yeah, great answer. <laughs> yeah, it's um, super easy. Why not take it? it? It boggles my mind that they might not. Do you have a casting choice off the top of your head? There's just been so many fan casts over the years, and I've contributed to it when I was a reporter. You know what? Marvel continues to kill it in casting. There's there's really yet to be a, a, a role that was super miscast, like an egregious sore thumb. I trust whoever they're going to Edward Norton? I, but he was a good Bruce Banner. No, I know. I'm just kidding. Look, I think that Michael Fassbender, of all of the former X-Men actors that they would want or should Agreed. transport into this world, yep. it's that fucking guy. Yeah. Remember, he he was potentially going to be in um, a Multiverse of Madness cameo. <sighs> so I, I agree. If, if there's going to be one that they pick, pick Fassbender. Um, you know, he was, I wanted him to be Bond if Craig walked away from Skyfall. He's going to be starring in Taika Waititi's Next Goal Wins. We need more. He started starring in David Fincher's The Killer, which I, I haven't heard about in a year, but allegedly. Yeah, is this still happening? Got made. Yeah, I think it's fucking oh, supposed shit. to come out this year. Fuck yeah. Know. Yeah. So Magneto tangent aside, what do we think about the future of Namor in the MCU? Obviously, they kept him around. Not only did they keep him around, but they're like, hey, we're pals now. I think it is blatantly obvious that a Namor- pals is a strong word. <laughs> political she blew act- up a, like, a, like a helicopter boat, like, you know, or whatever. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, but I think it's obvious that they're being reserved as allies yeah. for the Kang film and for the Secret Wars film, right? Yeah, I uh, I think there's a chance. Someone suggested, I don't know who it was, said he could be the villain of Thunderbolts because of Julio Luis Dreyfus's character showing up in this movie and kind of already getting involved with all this oh, stuff. Wait, see, I completely forgot that she was in this. Yeah, is she she shows up and she I mean she has more screen time than I fucking expected. Right, I mean, she's yeah. a significant role in the movie for the most part. Um I so I think I think there's a large chance that he could show up as like, all right, you guys, there's this fucking terrorist in the ocean. Go fuck with them. Yeah, we then, can't find them. That's your job. Exactly. So yeah. that, that could be the plot of that movie. But either way, I think he's going to be this kind of on reserves, on deck kind of guy that you call up when you know, Kang shows up and starts fucking shit up. What I'd like to see based on his final comment in the movie is somehow, some way, I, I don't know, but he tries to manipulate the surface world into quickly turning on Wakanda, joining forces mm-hmm. against Wakanda to drive Wakanda into his arms, cementing that, that alliance and ultimately getting him one cl- step closer to his overall plan, which he laid out you know, in this movie. I think that would be really interesting. Do I think that's necessarily what, what they're going to do? I, I, I don't know. I, I think I think he probably has one more bad-ish appearance before he's more like, okay, anti-hero part of the team. Right, okay. Fair enough. Uh, all right, now this, of course, is not a perfect film. It has its weaknesses. I thought it was 20 minutes to 30 minutes too long. I thought that the second act dragged a bit. Like I completely heavy. forgot that Julia Louis was in it, which suggests to me that they didn't need her to be in it. At By all. the way, great actress, great casting. That character, if we, if we want to talk about someone who hasn't really popped yet, like, yeah, I, I get it. She's going to mastermind Thunderbolt, so there's still time. But it's just been so out of touch with me, yeah. the, her, her whole little corner of the MCU. Well, because she's being shoehorned into, like, 
ancillary projects. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, um, it's good on. And someone said this on Twitter today, and I agreed. Like, fair or not, you know, like the, the head of the whatever agency is not going to have a purple streak in her hair. Like, she feels like a comic book character in like a world that's kind of like doesn't lean completely slightly more the comic book. Yeah. yeah, it's a little weird. Yeah. So, but B, you have some thoughts as well? Yeah, I mean, again, I, I, I really liked Wakanda Forever overall. But I think, as we've said, Coogler was given the impossible and unprecedented task of continuing this franchise in the wake of a tragic real-life death that, unfortunately, also unmoored the film series from its central anchor. You know, we've never really had an example of a major blockbuster billion-dollar franchise lose its star before, particularly at the beginning. And I think at times throughout the film, particularly in that first 35 minutes, it does feel a little bit disjointed and overly introductory. You know, the first act is dominated by a series of rapid fire questions. You know, what happened to Chala? Who are these blue people? What's the history of Talokan? What's Namor's deal? Who is Riri Williams? And I think they do a great job of ensuring that these new faces and story lives serve the, the primary story. And they do a great job of adding the context throughout the film so we understand it. But it is a lot to introduce and then absorb and then keep straight for an audience. You know, I, I saw it with my family and my girlfriend. And so my mom and, and uh, my girlfriend had both seen Black Panther, but are obviously not, you know, deep in the Marvel game. And I, I they like, leaned in during the, the first kind of 35 minutes was like, I'm really having a hard time figuring out what this movie is actually like about to start. And I was like, honestly, a little bit me too. Do you now, think that that's an MCU problem at large? Like, if you drop them into Doctor Strange 2 or Thor 4, would they not say the same thing? I mean, they hadn't seen the preceding films in those franchises, so they would say that probably extra. <laughs> I just think this was... Yo, Brandon, I'm confused as fuck. <laughs> yeah, but like, you know what? <laughs> I think I was the hammer. <laughs> I, I think that given the massive amount of exposition juggling they had to do and a lot of the new elements that they introduced it was just a bit much it was a bit choppy it was a bit disjointed but again and that also plays into the 20 minutes too long as well you know you you can chop off a little bit i think from the beginning and the the end and still get the same product but the fact that kugler is able to elevate it to an emotional level that exceeds something like Shang-Chi, which I think in a vacuum is probably a better standalone MCU story. I think this resonates on a much, 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 much deeper level. And that's why I think I like it more than a Shang-Chi, which I really enjoyed, even though, again, that's probably a cleaner entry in the MCU. Yeah, the the middle portion of the movie is just like, met, like metaphorically and literally treading water. Like it, it's like, right. it's just like everything, like the first act of this movie just moves i think like uh you get the death out of the way very quickly and then you are very quickly moving to mit to find riri williams and doing all this stuff with her in an awesome fucking action scene in boston with her which i thought was just super awesome Uh, a lot of practical stuff there I, i really enjoyed um and then you go to the underwater kingdom and it's like this is visually cool but uh i am bored like there is not a lot of progression happening here it feels like i don't know you need to find a way to inject that uh throughout as opposed to all right here's everything you need to know about namor and these people and it's just like god fuck relax and then 
Yeah. And, and it's just, it's just also very weird because Sherry's down there and she seems to have kind of an understanding of Namor, but then everyone above her is like, we got to go get her and fucking ruin everything. It's just like, it feels a little contrived. So I wasn't yeah. thrilled with that stuff, but after they leave and, and then Wakanda gets flooded, I was like, all right, this shit rocks again. Yeah. So it's just that stuff. That scene where he takes down the fucking city is electric. It's amazing with all that water flooding in. And then there's that, uh, kids standing in the street and i just got like oh this is pure superhero shit that i love to see with a hero throwing their life down to save a child oh yep. i love, fucking loved it i gotta yep. say though I, I did laugh in the theater because there's so many scenes in which namor rises from the water and i was just <laughs> thinking to myself he must have been freezing his ass off for most of the shooting like all right action yeah. and he just has to come up from the water yep. he's like man i am pruny as a motherfucker i thought the same exact thing Kulukukan. <laughs> is that it? Is that it? That's it, yeah. Kulukukan. Uh, uh, right. he, he was so badass. Yeah, he was. He was. So speaking of characters and actors and performances, I would say in a genre and a film franchise, the sort of actor performances are never really the selling point. You could make the case that I think Heath Ledger and Joaquin Phoenix are the only comic book actors to ever be nominated let alone win for a role i would further argue that joaquin phoenix is doing more of a one flew over the cuckoo's nest than he is the dark knight so i don't even know if that one really counts i tweeted this back when i saw the first trailer angela bassett perhaps represents the genre's best chance at a best supporting oscar nom not only because she deserves it not only because the film deserves it but because you could see it in that first trailer when she hits that, have I not given everything? I'm like, oh, awesome. fuck, yo, she's going for it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think she steals it. She was MVP, like no doubt about it. I think that she steals it, obviously, just because, well, she steals basically everything that she's in. But I legitimately think now, and I have enough body of work here to make this case, I think Okoye is legitimately one of my favorite MCU characters. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she is so fucking dope. She is so badass. I think her character is responsible for all of the coolest action scenes in this film. I think that sort of buried under the weight of Ramonda and Shuri's arc is her arc. She loses the only thing she's ever known. Yep. Um, so yeah, those probably are my two big ones. I know a lot of people are gassing up Namor as they should, but from a performance standpoint, I think that if the Academy Awards want people to tune into their show, they'll nominate Tom Cruise for best actor. They'll nominate Michelle Yeoh for best actress and they'll nominate uh, Angela, Angela Bassett for best supporting actress because not only are those populists blockbuster choices but they're deserved they are deserved and, and and if there is ever going to be a bridging of the gap between blockbuster and prestige i think we have a unique and not that everything everywhere all at once is blockbuster in its conception but its product wound up being i mean it made a hundred million dollars against a 15 or 20 million dollar budget so all three of those performances angela bassett included i think are worthy of that sort of recognition and then on sort of a character level this further hammered home that an okoye led dora milaje series would fucking slap yeah i, I think uh when that that line that you just reenacted uh happened i'm like that's oh, gonna i be... will gladly do it again if you want ready go ahead yeah 
Have I not given everything? That's powerful. That's not powerful. Bad, right? Yeah. I think you know, uh say that her and I look alike. <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> Go ahead. the the uh i was thinking when that clip happened uh that's gonna be the oscar like you know here's the nominees clip kind of thing uh yeah. when they when they present that if, if she gets nominated uh no she's great all three of the the main women that they have in this movie are like top-notch and they all have like a very you know like connected but unique arc they all lose something and so that mid i'd say four sherry okoye ramonda and uh, nakia yes correct yes yes this is uh, a female movie man this it is a is. woman's movie yeah it is and uh that midpoint with that scene where we keep talking about is like where all of it kind of happens where the, everyone just starts to fall apart and i i think it it works on so many levels and given how much this movie has to do when that midpoint happens, it's so like, it's so meaty. You can, it's so rich with layers for every single character. It's like everything is working in unison here. And I think it's fucking awesome. Um, and I was very surprised. We haven't touched on this. They killed her. Like I was surprised. Yeah, it was not I was like, I dead. Did. they killed her dead. Yeah. I like, I was like, well, I was, as soon as Chadwick Boseman's character died, I was like, well, that's probably going to be the end of it for deaths in this movie or big tragic you know, losses. And then they go right for it. And I think it it's both surprising and effective and further Shuri's character in a big way and, and gives her the push that she needs. And it's like, what a ballsy swing. And just to quickly build, when I was watching the MIT scene in the theater, it hit me when I was watching in the theater that Okoye is Wakanda's Wong. This just absolutely super powerful, but super relatable person with just the absolute best scathing real talk humor. Yes. I just, and I was like, these two, I need to see something with them two interacting because like they're perfect mirror images of each other in different ways. Oh, dude, I love that. I think I'm still that for a tweet. Thanks for that, Brandon. Uh, <laughs> all right. But speaking of performances, perform I. That's <laughs> That's the plural performance. Sure, it All is right. now. This, this show is starting to get off the rails. We better <laughs> wrap up here. Um, can Letitia Wright carry the franchise going forward? I think, as we just named, of those four actresses, she's somewhat severely outclassed. I think now she's also the least experienced of of the four. So I don't want to knock her points for not being as good of an actress as Academy Award winner Lupita Nyong'o and icon of the business Angela Bassett. But at the same time, like I said years ago, as soon as Bozeman passed, if there's a character to center the franchise on going forward, it is, I say that again, Academy Award winner Lupita Nyong'o's Nakia, who's probably what, the third most important character in this film, I'd say. So they didn't go down that route. She is clearly still an important character in this world, but I just don't know if Letitia Wright has the performative gravitas or also in a weird way, the physical gravitas, right? She is a wiry, tiny person. And I just, her being a legendary figure of the Black Panther just doesn't feel as epic to me. Like I think one of my biggest complaints of this film 
is how sort of unepic her unveiling feels, right? When she drops down and shows up and they're like, the Black Panther lives, right? That should be the fist pumping moment of the film. For me, it wasn't. So I have my doubts about her ability to be at the center of Black Panther 3. I think it worked here because of the context of her character's relationship to T'Challa. But going forward, I'm not so sure. I was uh, impressed and I dug it that they waited till like over two hours into the movie to show Black Panther. Uh, You know, like the suit of armor on someone. It takes I I looked at my time. I was timing it. How long is it going to take? It was over two hours. And I was like, that's a ballsy choice. I, I know like Christopher Nolan has like Batman at like the hour mark of Batman Begins or something like that. And and Superman is also pretty, pretty late or something like but that. But those are films where there's only one hero. They've got the Dora Milaje and the sure. Shallow Cans out yeah. doing super horror. It is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is still stuff happening. Um, But I, I thought the entrance worked i thought her her character worked do i want to see her as the black panther going forward i'm not too sure but i thought for the role she had to take on here because of the logistics of it all i thought she did a fine job and i would be okay with her being uh in uh kang dynasty or whatever uh as the black panther Panther. and then maybe we get a time jump and we get little t'challa right so be I actually disagree. Like, I think she's a fantastic actress. I just think from a narrative standpoint. What do you know her from except this and Black Mirror? Black Mirror, this, and like uh, other things that I can't remember right now. But, I, you know, because I, I knew her before she was cast in Black Panther. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, that's, I've seen her. But I think she's a very, very talented actress. I just think from a narrative standpoint, it was always interesting, more interesting to have Nakia become the Black Panther. And, mm-hmm. and I think uh, a, a very well-deserved And from uh, a marketing standpoint. That. That is not to be discounted here. No, because I feel like people don't know that she like won a fucking Oscar for 12 years, 12 years of slave. Like, I yeah. feel like that, like, you know. She's she, also fluent in Spanish. So when she was in those scenes, that was really just her doing her thing. I feel Hell like she's yeah. criminally underused within the end. Like, Okoye is fucking yes. everywhere. Yes. She pops up in everything and she's awesome. So I feel like that character should get the same treatment. All Maybe right. She's final- just really busy. I don't know. She is. She's actually the lead <laughs> of the upcoming. A Quiet Place prequel. So. Yeah, great right. casting. Yeah. Getting work. She She's fucking amazing. Don't look too bad either. Uh, she also <laughs> left an Apple TV Plus series to take that role, the Quiet Place role. So Really? So, yeah, so it's like, you know, so she, she's very in demand, and I just, I think this is going to be really cool. I'm, I can't wait to see her in yet another, you know, genre horror film, and she Plus, crushed isn't, it isn't it being, oh no, it was going to be directed by Jeff Nichols, Nichols but he yeah. dropped out. Now it's being by directed by the guy who did Pig, which is almost more exciting. <laughs> um, I love Jack Nich- Jeff Nichols, though. Yeah, he yeah. is great. All right, final thing here. Post-credit scene. Uh, they're in the Dominican Republic, I think. It's been a few weeks since no, I've seen They're so. in Haiti. Haiti. Turns out that T'Challa had a secret son with Nakia named T'Challa. I don't know if they do, like, uh, ancestral heirs like i don't know if that makes him the heir to the throne or not but point is he is this he is the son of t'challa and he exists in the mcu and this scene was not put in there for no reason thoughts i was another big surprise for me i was like oh so this is kind of their answer to the recast t'challa thing is like you don't have to recast him you can just kind of do it as like this is 
Black Panther's gift to us is like he will still carry on onward. And I think that's a very smart way of doing it. That is a fucking hard thing to do. And they were very smart to come up with something like that, especially in case, you know, uh, Leticia Wright, she's got some stuff going on that people are not so sure about. So, (laughs) well, she seems uh, largely past that now. I think so. They might have probably told her, like, hey, we, you saw what we did with Star Wars Girl. Star Wars, all right Gina Carano. See, yeah, I, <laughs> yeah I forgot yeah exactly so you know uh but I, I think uh that scene was beautiful and was like oh what a fucking just brilliant guy Ryan Coogler is just to be like hang on I have an idea I assume it's his idea and it's, yeah. it's great but then B before you go though is it is there a sense of frustration that that was not just in the film of itself and not the ending of the movie like why does that need to be a post-credit scene I don't fucking understand that that's that Marvel shit that drives me <laughs> like I understand what yeah. it's a scene completely disconnected from what's going on in the film but like it really yes. picks up from where the closing moment <laughs> left I don't understand why they do that yeah it, I, it reminds me of like when if you left far from home and like didn't see the post credit scene by the time no way home came around like wait what the fuck happened why is his identity revealed <laughs> right. you have a missing chunk of very crucial plot information so yes i i get what you're saying brandon it, it was a really like like kate said it was a really really clever way an unexpected way to sidestep a potential controversy that had been brewing among fandoms i i just i don't give a shit like cool <laughs> like like no seriously it's like okay this is going to be a plot point at some point in the future and i'll wait till then to like judge whether it was good yeah. or not you know and, like, no but it was like were you moved on. by it at all i mean people were like oh you know I was like, okay. <laughs> you know I, i'm i'm happy that like the family of t'challa can be happy you know with, with some right. you know but like i don't, I don't really give a shit that much well we'll see uh, like maybe this character will like really grow into like one of my favorites i don't know and it's gonna be right. super easy to age him up you know whether it's like a multiverse uh, version of him or just you know a time jump it's gonna be so easy for them to do that so final thoughts on wakanda forever before we close it out i is, think it's is it the best phase four film no way home tops it for me because okay. i'm biased but i think it's the second best okay it's it's either my second or, or third favorite you know I, I love no way home and and eternals a lot uh, are you going into ant-man 3 more excited now you've seen this or that you've seen just fucking kang being yoked as fuck everywhere he pops up <laughs> yeah I mean, that, that's like, I, I'm the same level, but if you're asking me what excited me more for Ant-Man 3, Wakanda Forever, or Jonathan Majors starring in three upcoming movies and just being absolutely shredded, it's the latter. Yeah, he's got Devotion, Ant-Man, and Creed 3 on like a six-month stretch. That's we fucking had wild. Three trailers for him before Black Panther started. Yeah, like that, that Devotion, Creed, and, <laughs> and Ant-Man. All he needs is like one of them to be a hit and one of them not to bomb. And he's in like good, you know, movie star tier progression. Yeah. Wow. All right. Uh, Let's move on to our interview with Nicholas Holt and Frank Grillo or not Schrodinger's interview. I guess we'll (laughs) find out when the time comes. today i yeah. am joined hey what's up man folks today i'm, I'm joined by oh sorry i keep on interrupting you <laughs> zoom man i'm gonna be quiet gonna i'm gonna be quiet you do the intro and i'm i'm just trying to g you up so if you would allow me <laughs> uh, folks, <laughs> okay. today i am joined by nick holt and 
actor that you know from iconic projects such as Mad Max, X-Men, The Grey, and his new film, The Menu, which hits theaters on November 18th. Thank you so much for your time today, sir. Of course. Thank you. Thank you so, for cheering me up like that. Uh, I love this film, and I have a feeling you loved your role in it, because while your character isn't necessarily the villain, I'd argue he's the most hateable in the entire thing. How did you go about preparing to essentially play an asshole? Like, because you seem like you're having a, a lot of fun. Did you have a checklist of asshole things that you had to do or wanted to become? Uh, yes. Yeah, I was. As a, <laughs> I have a checklist, and and throughout the day, normally I just try and hit those hit tick those boxes. Um, <laughs> I think. I mean, I guess the fun thing with this character is he is completely like despicable on many levels but he's also kind of fun because he's 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 so annoying and like is just such a suck up and buys into all the pretense of this restaurant and all the bs of it so it's like it's fun to play that in the chaos of what was going on around um but also at the same time try and then level that out a little bit where it's like this guy is someone who's completely so uncomfortable in his skin and wants to be accepted so desperately that he's kind of essentially been indoctrinated into kind of a cult-like um, world and 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 is is so desperate to to be a part of it and be accepted by this chef that he makes terrible decisions and then gets ripped apart by it. Um, so yeah, I had fun. <laughs> um... So you and I are about the same age. So if this is the case for me, I could only imagine it so for you. Rafe is one of my favorite actors of all time. And I like to, and, I, and I'm a film fan, but I'm a sports fan too. And I kind of equate the two, like when you're going up against the best in sports, that kind of causes you to raise your game, right? So when you're going up against a legend like Rafe and a star like Anya, and you're sharing scenes one-on-one, -on -one, how does that cause you internally to raise your game? Uh, yeah, I think it's a good point, and I do I do see somewhat like acting and being on set it is almost at times being like an athlete, I suppose, where like you prepped, you prepared, you hopefully you're ready, but then there's that time that you have to perform and deliver. Um, and it's interesting because I mean the wonderful thing about Rafe and Anya is it's not like you're going up playing for opposing teams; you're playing for the same team, and they're both very supportive and encouraging and whatever you throw out or they throw out it's it's teamwork at that point so um but it's definitely that thing like you know when you when you're a, when you play on a sports team and you go up a team that like who aren't as good and they and the and the game ends up being close and you're like well how is this close we're a better team and you kind of play to that level but then nil, suddenly nil, you play a saying. team that's like so much better than you and they elevate it so it is very much like when choosing projects um you always just want to be working with people like Rafe and Anya and, and, and all the cast of this because they're always going to elevate and demand a lot of you. So speaking of working with the best, your next film role is with, on our side of the pond, one of the biggest icons that we have in Nick Cage. So I'm curious, were there ever moments where you caught yourself like, as a fan, sort of awed by the work that he's doing, not only as Nick Cage, but as Dracula of all characters? I'm just curious as what that's like. Do you ever find yourself like, whoa, I'm acting alongside Nicolas Cage in a Dracula movie. What's going on right now? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't think it really gets more iconic than Nick Cage in as Dracula. And so it was, <laughs> there were definitely moments where I'd be there and I'd be in scenes and I'd be like, this is wild. This is, this is like prime Nick Cage, but completely as Dracula in this moment. 
And, and there's such a fun dynamic and, and wonderful actor to work with because he, he draws ideas and inspiration from so many different places and elevates the scenes again. Like, you know, it's that thing of working with great actors. He, he brings such a passion and love for the craft um, and also just such fun and joy to like the mo each beat within those moments. So um, I'm excited for people to see what he's done. I think I speak for all film fans when I say we cannot wait for that one. Just based on that one image of Cage alone in the purple suit, I can't wait, man. And I'm sure you're great, great as well. I want to move on to your co-star, Anya. You and her share something very awesome in common, and that is starring in a Mad Max film. I imagine at some point you two talked about it. Did you give her any advice? I actually read the book that just came out this past year about... Uh, Fury Road, and it just really made me realize what an intense process that was. Did you have any advice for her going into that film? Or if not, what would it have been? Uh, we definitely spoke about it. She was prepping to go off there and, and prepare, like, so she was riding bikes and learning to drift cars and doing all, and I think that was the key thing, you know, just being as prepared as possible because those environments and that set can be intense and full on, and it's, and it's a lot it's it's what makes shooting those movies incredible is that you are really in those vehicles doing those things and that makes the acting easy obviously because you're not having to pretend on a green screen it's happening it's visceral um uh but Anya's such a like uh, a dedicated performer and like um brilliant actress just that she will fight for her characters in every moment and elevate everything that's there and do what's right by the story. So I, I'm very excited to see how she brings Furiosa to life. And when I bring up Mad Max or when you guys talked about it, what's sort of the first thing that pops in your mind when you reflect on those days? I read in the book how the group of war boys, like you guys genuinely became like a band of brothers. So where does your mind go when you think on those days? Uh, honestly, the first image that comes up in my brain is is before we would set off, we'd do quite like long drives through the desert where the cameras would just always be rolling and 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 shooting and um and there was a one of the stunt team before we'd start would would run across the front of all the vehicles lined up and give the signal to start the engines. And I think that's the kind of the the most incredible experience I think I've ever experienced on set hearing your own engine and your vehicle start up, but then all the other ones around you, it was just so loud and intense. And then the the drum, the war drums would start. And it was it was impossible at that point not to behave and and be like a war boy who was going into battle because it was such an intense atmosphere. So I've got a wrap here and I just want to loop back to the film that's going to come out th this week. The menu. I was kind of impressed by sort of how much of this film is shot with you sitting just in a chair talking? I'm curious, what were the most unexpected challenges and or rewarding parts of that? I, I, th I think, I mean, that was the, the most rewarding part of that is because it all takes place in in, in one location in this restaurant on a set. Um, we got to actually witness all the other conversations and scenes and performances that were going on around us. Whereas normally, you know, different scenes in a movie that you're not in, you don't ever, you're not privy to. So to get to actually see that and um, some of the incredible performances that all the cast were putting in. Um, and that's also the difficult thing because then you're on set throughout the day always and, and you might be on camera at any moment you don't know. So you've got to stay in it and, and make sure that you're kind of keeping things real. So, but that's kind of like the film itself. You're on camera, but you just don't know it. Nick, I love to hate your character in this so much. You were a blast. The film was a blast. Thank you for your time. And I can't wait to see what, what you got next, man. Hey, thank you so much. Appreciate it.
What's up, Frank? Hey, buddy. Uh, all right, folks. Today I am joined by Frank Grillo, an actor you know from projects such as The Winter Soldier, The Purge, End of Watch, and his new film, Lamborghini, The Man Behind the Legend, which hits theaters on November 18th. Thank you so much for your time today, sir. Thank you, man. Thank you. So I imagine the preparation for this role was pretty cool, whether it be learning about the cars or getting fitted for the suits. What about the process of becoming Lamborghini did you enjoy the most? Well, those things, you know, we got some custom suits made with an Italian tailor and uh, learning about him, reading his son's book, which the movie's based on, um, being surprised about, you know, who Lamborghini was and how he started this company. It was all, and I didn't have a lot of time. I had about 10 days from the time I got the job to the time I had to be in Italy. So, which I think worked in my advantage. I didn't overthink it too much, but it was a lot. And uh, it was exciting to go back to Italy to get to play one of the great Italian icons, uh, specifically in the auto automotive industry. And, uh, you know, I was, I was afraid. I was, I was like, like people, how, you know, I know people don't see me doing stuff like that. And, you, you know, sometimes they don't respond well to it. And, but, being Italian, playing in Italian, going to Italy, it all f just fell into place. Where, Where's your family from, Frank? My mother's side is from uh, Sorrento, uh -huh. uh, and my father's from Calabria. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Okay, so, and something I find, I, I found this in this film and general films about entrepreneurs at large, I feel like there was a greater reverence for entrepreneurs of the past than the ones we currently deal with today. Do you think that there's a reason for that other than pure old nostalgia? You know, I think we we know with today's tech, we know so much about everybody. You know, we know so much about, I mean, the, we know so much about the president. We know it's at our fingertips. We know so much about everyone. There was so mysterious back then. You know, it, it was like the movie stars of that age. It's, you know, you only saw them when they came out to premieres at night and they were so glamorous and you imagine that's what their life was. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think we have that same kind of, and I think nostalgia also plays a, a big part in it because humans love nostalgia. I mean, I, yeah. you know, um, but, but. Especially when it looks that good. I know it looks good. And they were, sh listen, they dressed beautifully. They sounded beautiful. You know, you're in Italy. Uh, they they made beautiful cards. I mean, it's, uh, so, so you touched on this. You're obviously known for the physicality of your roles, which by the way, man, when I looked up how old you are, I was stunned. You look incredible. So I can't believe how old I am, brother. I can't believe I'm 123. I mean, it's <laughs> well, either way, you are still known for, for the physicality of your roles. But you touched on this. This is not necessarily what you're known for. So what about the challenge of a biopic performance did you enjoy most? Um, I, what I enjoyed most about it was the human aspect. So, you know, when you're doing those big action movies or little action movies, it's just nonstop. You know, you, you're running, you're fighting, you're running some more and you're fighting some more. There, there was such nuance. There's such conversations I'm having with whether it be with my wife or with an engineer it's you know th th it was such it was such a human thing and and so to, to come to come down to that level and to and to do it in a truthful way I felt oh I'm acting again like this feel this feels great to do this 
And, and I, you know, I've said it uh, in other interviews, it's kind of changed my DNA a bit. Like now I want to go out and, you know, try to find more things that, that, you know, maybe people won't, aren't thinking about me for, Do you, you know, know I, mean? I didn't have this wrote down, but I'm, I'm curious when, when I hear you talk, you know, your stories is one of my favorites. You didn't get your break until you're, you know, mid forties. Did you ever imagine 10 years ago that you would be in this spot playing Lamborghini? Does this feel like a real sort of, not so much definitive moment, but sort of a turning of a page to a new step in your career? It, 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 it is turning of a page. It actually is. And, and again, at any age, you can turn a page. It doesn't matter how old you are. But I'm going to say something, and I say this with no hubris. Yes, I always imagined that I would be the guy in the poster. I and, love that. And, I, and, and, you know, I always imagined I was the guy that was going to throw the touchdown. I, I, I don't know why. And I said, okay, I'm going to have that level of, of belief in myself. And I try to instill that in my children. I try to l let them understand that it might not come today. It might not come tomorrow. It might not come when you think it's going to come, but if you don't believe in yourself, it will never come. Mm -hmm. So Yes, like I, I love seeing myself on the poster, but I believe that I, I believe that I was going to be there. And, and yeah. age, it doesn't, you know, my friend Liam Neeson at 58 made a little movie called Taken. <laughs> right? I don't know if I've heard of that one. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. And then he and then he, he's gone on a run. Yeah, absolutely. 58, and he did lots of things before. So then this kind of touches on that a bit. You and I, I don't know if my name gave it away, but you and I are both Italians. My mom is actually from Rockland County as well. My, my, right. my dad's from Queens. So I'm curious, what members of our culture would you like to see get the biopic treatment? Whether you're involved in it, in it or not, you can shoot your shot or just for the sake of the Italians, who would you like to see on the-, the Oh man, that's a great question. I, I, does it have to be a good guy? No, absolutely not. <laughs> Yeah, because you know, <laughs> Il Duce is a very interesting, and right now you can't even say his name in Italy. You're yeah. not even allowed to murmur his name. Yep. Uh, by for those uh, who don't know, it's Mussolini, and, yep. and uh, I just think it's an interesting time to tell the story, just Absolutely. politically what's going on in the world, especially with this new chick that they've got got in charge there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so look very man, I, but by the way i brought up Mussolini. i said something about fascism about mussolini because i was driving every day past uh the plaza where he used to give his speeches and my producer said to me don't mention his name <laughs> i said what he goes do not mention mussolini's name yeah. I said, okay I was yeah <laughs> yeah i i uh was down in um Positano a few years back and they're huge fans of Napoli and I made the mistake of bringing up Juventus yeah and they almost threw me off the whole island oh I know and you know look he's <laughs> Mussolini's a bad guy bad, not right a good absolutely guy. but we need to tell stories about the guys who are not good yeah too. we don't so want to see I them again I was looking through your films and you've obviously appeared in tons of not only awesome movies but physically demanding roles What's the most difficult film you've ever made? And you could say this if uh, you want. And what was the most fun film? The most difficult film was a movie I did with uh, my partner Carnahan and uh, Mel Gibson called Boss Level. Oh, I just watched that today. 
You did? Yeah. Well, that I was did. the most physically demanding movie I've ever done. You are I, showing I, off with that body of yours, bro. Uh, <laughs> Give me a break, dude. That's and, why I Googled and, I was like, how old is this fucking guy? Unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, the most fun I've ever had on a movie was that movie, Boss Level. <laughs> so let me ask you. No, please go ahead. Go ahead. No, it's, the, the, it's the same. It's the same movie for two questions. And did you produce that as well? Yeah, we Joe Joe wrote it. We own it. Uh, cool, man. I saw of, you produce that and Cop, Cop Shop. I enjoyed. Yeah, that's our company. War Party made those two movies. I really enjoyed those. Um, yeah, thank you. So one of your boss level co-stars has spent much this year deservedly getting her flowers, and that is the great Michelle Yeoh. Oh, you yeah. two share a scene of her teaching you how to sword fight, which is yep. beautifully meta in and of itself. Yep. Do you is there something, some story that you want to speak to uh, about your time when you guys filmed that? Oh, oh, I'm a crazy Michelle Yeoh fan. Crazy. And I had a, I, first of all, I was, I was intimidated by her and I had a crush on her and I think <laughs> she both, knew it. Brother. <laughs> and so when we were working together, she, she was really kind of sweet and a little bit smitten too. And I had this whole thing with Michelle Yeoh in my mind. And we had this kind of affair while we read <laughs> sword fighting and it was spectacular. I couldn't believe we got her to come and do the movie. Like yeah. I couldn't believe Car that was the power of Joe Carnahan, but uh, we great timing too. Cause yeah. now she's the, as big as she's ever been. Oh my gosh. And yeah. she's so talented. And yeah. She's Amazing. And she just brings such a warmth to that role, even though she's in what a scene or two. Hey, yeah, Frank, man, I've got to wrap here. You are awesome. I love Thanks, seeing you brother. pop up and things, whether it be kicking someone's ass or donning a dope suit. I wish you good luck going forward and can't wait to see what this new chapter has in store for you, bro. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Uh, all right. Thank you to Brandon for joining us this week. You can follow him at great underscore Catsby and all the awesome work he does over at Parrot Analytics. Follow Cade at Cade underscore Onder and all of his work at comicbook.com. Cade is in game and season. Cade, what's next, bro? I am playing Marvel's Midnight Suns. Oh, shit. Yes. I thought that that doesn't come out till March. Comes out in December. Oh, uh, shit. But Fuck yeah. yeah. That one I'm kind of excited for. Yeah. Um, all right. And then follow me at Eric Italiano. Follow the podcast at Postcred Pod. All right, y'all. Thanks for tuning in. Leave us a review if you have not already. And we will talk to you next week. Peace.